Well, just recently, I ran across an article online called 12 Ways to Know If There's Chemistry Between Two People. The article was on a website called datingtheone.com, which tells us a lot already. In the opening paragraphs of the article, it said this, when two people with chemistry come together, their neurotransmitters fire up the pleasure centers of the brain and trigger the hormones. Without chemistry, there is no attraction and therefore no relationship. The article went on to talk about how chemistry is one of the leading indicators of success in a, in a relationship and one of the leading indicators of figuring out if you've found the one. The problem is chemistry without the right commitments only lead to confusion and conflict in relationships. And that's what I want to talk about today as we're in week number three of a sermon series all about relationships called hashtag single, finding fulfillment no matter your relationship status. If you're new here, by the way, uh, thank you so much for being here. My name is Jeff Manis. I am the lead pastor here. And for everyone uh, who is with us, so glad you're here, including anyone who might be joining us on video somewhere as well. Um, uh, if you've missed either of the first two Sundays in the series, I, I would really encourage you to jump online, elementchurch.life, and get caught up on, on those. We kind of laid the foundation uh, for relationships by talking about having a single focus in this life. And also, since we're uh, only touching the surface, really, of all of these subjects in the series, we're going to, uh, Lord willing, take the last Sunday of the series, November 7th, and uh, kind of do a live Q&A about relationships, marriage, and sexuality. So uh, you'll have a chance to ask your questions anonymously live in the service via an app. And uh, I'll do my best to answer your questions and offer clarification on things that maybe we weren't uh, able to discuss. Uh, chemistry is a powerful thing, right? It really is. Like chemistry can make a relationship feel right. And when a relationship feels right, we believe it is right. And it might be, but chemistry is not the litmus test to determine if a relationship is right. Like you can meet someone in line at Chick-fil-A and have chemistry, right? Like, oh, you dip your waffle fries in Chick-fil-A sauce too? We're meant to be. No, everyone dips their waffle fries in Chick-fil-A sauce, and if they don't, you should pray for them and definitely not marry them. Can I get a witness? up in this place today. Now everyone wants Chick-fil-A and they're not even open. <laughs> Tomorrow. All I'm saying is chemistry's not hard. You can have chemistry over literally anything. And, and please understand, I'm not saying we shouldn't desire or, or have chemistry in a relationship. It's just not enough. <laughs> like chemistry might spark a relationship, but it cannot sustain one. It'll wear off. I would venture to guess, outside of a few very rare occasions, that every marriage that has ended in divorce, guess what they had when they started? Chemistry. Otherwise, they wouldn't have got married in the first place. So in a relationship, chemistry makes you think you found the one. But having the right commitments actually make you one. And that leads right into our big idea for today. It's on the screens if you want to write it down. Being one in marriage has nothing to do with chemistry and everything to do with commitment. 
being one in marriage has nothing to do with chemistry. Like chemistry, you have no choice in. It just happens. But commitments require a choice. So being one is all about commitment. So that leads to this big question we're gonna hopefully answer today. What commitments lead to oneness in marriage? What commitments lead to oneness in marriage? These probably aren't the only commitments, but they're the ones we're gonna see in this main scripture, Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Um, if you got your Bible with you, Genesis is probably the easiest book to find because it's the very first one in all of the Bible. If you don't own your own Bible, uh, we'd love to give you one for free. Just ask for a Bible out in the lobby. Uh, they are free of charge. And since we are now beginning our look in this series, specifically at the marriage relationship, it's probably helpful for everyone to understand that our theology of marriage and sexuality comes from scripture. Specifically, our theology of marriage and sexuality starts right here in this scripture that we're going to read today. Now, I know that, that you might be here today or you're watching or listening uh, online and you don't believe in God or don't believe the Bible is the word of God, especially as it pertains to marriage, relationships, sexuality. And, and if that's you, I am just so honored and thrilled that you are here, even if you never believe what we believe uh, about God, the Bible, marriage, relationships, sex, all ever believe that. Uh, not only are you welcome here, you are invited uh, to be here with us. It's probably no surprise to anyone that we do believe in God and we do believe the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, we believe the Bible is our guide in Christian living, even as it pertains to relationships, marriage, and sexuality. And right here in Genesis 2, we're going to see God establish the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And in his establishment of this covenant, I believe that he reveals, as we look kind of under the surface, he reveals some commitments that we need to have in order to be one in marriage. So we're stepping into the creation story here. Uh, man has already been created. Woman has not been created yet. Genesis 2 verse 18 says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And I think it's important for us to, to note and understand that it does not say it's not good for the man to be single or it's not good for the man to be unmarried. It says not good for the man to be alone. So this is first a statement on our need for community, not our need for marriage, okay? That's what it's stating. God just happened to be establishing the first covenant marriage in the process, all right? So it's not good for him to be alone, verses 19 and 20. So the Lord God formed, the ground, formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him, there was no one that God saw fit for man to marry. Now, also, I think this is important to note, okay? And I'm being somewhat facetious and humorous here, but it's, it's not like God didn't know who was right for the man, right? He wasn't experimenting with his creative ability, trying to figure out who's just right for a man to marry. Like God was not up in heaven scratching his head thinking, hmm, I wonder what would be just right. Maybe an aardvark. 
No, not that. How about a porcupine? Oh, sorry about that, Adam. That's not what God was doing, right? I, I think we understand that. Bringing all the animals before Adam wasn't so God could figure out who man should marry. It was to reveal to Adam and ultimately reveal to us his design and desire for marriage and sexuality, his design and desire for oneness in marriage. So the story continues, Genesis 2, 21 through 24. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the ribs, from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And then in verse 24, God reveals, I believe, his design and desire for oneness in marriage. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother, it's inferring the woman does the same thing, and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Everyone say one. Jesus, then, in the New Testament, when he was asked about uh, divorce, Jesus actually quotes Genesis 2.24. In two weeks, by the way, we're taking one entire Sunday to talk about uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. One whole sermon on divorce and remarriage. It's going to be super, super deep and, and heavy. But Jesus here, responding to the question on divorce, says this, Matthew 19.4 and 5. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning... God made them male and female. And he said, this explains, now quoting verse 24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. Other versions use the word cleave, is cleaved to his wife, and the two are united into one. It's in these two places in scripture and literally dozens of others where we get our theology of marriage and sexuality. But it's verse 24, the one verse that Jesus quotes, where we see the oneness of marriage. That being one in marriage has nothing to do with chemistry. Everything to do with commitment. So what commitments lead to oneness in marriage. We're going to see three things from that one verse. The first one is this. There is a relational priority. That in marriage, if you're going to be one, there is a relational priority you have to commit to. We get this from the word leaves in the passage. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. So a relationship priority has now shifted in the man and, and the woman. The pulpit commentary said this, it's a forsaking of father and mother, not in respect of function, they are still obviously your mom and dad, but in respect of habitation and comparatively in respect of affection. That once was, uh, uh, what once was a relational priority to the parents has now shifted to a relational priority towards your spouse. And, and please, please understand, this relational priority does not mean that all other relationships are now neglected. In fact, the worst thing a married couple can do or the worst thing a dating couple can do is, is kind of isolate themselves from everyone else. That's not what I'm, I'm saying here. 
Like we already read in the passage where, where God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I think it's, 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 it's clear that we can also infer it's not good for the couple to be alone either. Like we need community. We need family and, and friends. We need small groups in, in, in the church. We need to open up our marriage as a gift to bless other people within our, in our own lives. Part of our vision here at Element is to help people, including married people, connect into meaningful relationships. Like we exist to guide people to experience life to its fullest. We're talking about that in the series, being fulfilled, no matter your relationship status. The second part of our vision is to get connected into meaningful relationships and make a lasting impact. So this doesn't mean that once you're married, you're now closed to all other relationships. It just means that all other relationships need to be in their proper place so that you don't close the door to the oneness God desires for you to have in marriage. It's a placement thing, not an abandonment thing. That, that in marriage, like the relationship order is God, spouse, all other people, and then yourself. Okay? You get that out of whack and you will not be fulfilled. Get that out of whack, you will struggle to have oneness in your marriage. Now, I know that not every marriage has this next relationship to navigate through, and I want to be sensitive to the people in the room who desire this relationship and for whatever reason you've not been able to or that you've lost this relationship. But for many marriages, there is one relationship that if I can only have time to speak on one, there's one that I believe is the most subtle in its attempt to keep couples from the oneness that God desires and designed for them to have. Did you know that since 1990, divorce rates among empty nesters has tripled since 1990? It's the most of any group. Making empty nesters today among the highest at risk for divorce among all married couples. And why are empty nesters most at risk? Well, here's what researchers are finding. Even in a well-meaning and loving way, for about 18 to 30 years, depending on how long, uh, how many kids you have and how, uh, how long they're in the home, for about 18 to 30 years, what they're finding is parents have made their relationship more focused on their kids, their kids' activities, their kids' academics, and their kids' success than they did on their own marriage. And by the time all the kids are gone, the couple has nothing left in common. The oneness is gone. They've not developed their relationship. They've not made their marriage a priority. Oh, they might have launched some successful kids into the world, but they have no relational foundation. Their kids were their foundation. And now it's gone. So as hard as it is in marriage, even when it comes to our own kids, your relationship takes priority over theirs. Does not mean that you neglect your kids or don't provide for them. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying. I do believe, though, that if you are married and if you have kids, the best thing you could ever do for your children is model to them just how important your marriage is to one another. That speaks to them they're in a safe home, a secure home, 
one that has stability and foundation, that we need to do this specifically through our time, giving time to one another. Like I would even, I don't care if you call it a date night or conversation time or whatever, you gotta set aside some specific and extended time every week while your kids are awake so they know that you are taking time one for the other. I think every couple should get away overnight or over many nights at least once a year where they leave their kids behind and go have time just with each other. Sabrina and I, we try to get, over, we try to get away overnight at least once a quarter uh, every single year. And we're, we've been doing that uh, pretty consistently. Our goal is, my goal is in marriage, that when all of our kids are gone from our home, that we have so invested into our marriage that it will just be a continuation of a thriving relationship, not a rebuilding of one. But that's not gonna happen if we don't have a relational priority in, in marriage. Listen, our enemy, the devil, will use whatever he can, including our kids, to keep us from oneness in marriage. Okay? So being one in marriage has nothing to do with chemistry, everything to do with commitment. So what commitments lead to oneness in marriage? Well, as difficult as it is, we have to be committed to a relational priority. And obviously there's other relationships we could have talked about, just don't have time to. Number two is this, there's a relational unity. There's a relational unity. Genesis 2, 24 tells us that when the man and woman leave their father and mother, they will be joined together and the two will become one. The, the Hebrew word for one is a fun word to say. It's the word echad. Sounds like you're hacking a loogie or something. Echad. Everyone try it out. Everyone say echad. Now wipe off the head of the person in front of you. Don't do it. No, don't do that. One of the definitions for the word echad is not just one, it's unity. It's one of the definitions. Matthew Poole, in his commentary, uh, he said this about becoming one. The two shall be esteemed by themselves and others to be as entirely and inseparably united and shall have an intimate and universal communion as if they were one person, one soul, one body. That kind of unity, that, that kind of relational unity only will exist when I, not they, when I choose to give of myself, to give up myself for the good of the other. It, it requires great sacrifice, by the way, for us to do this. This is what Jesus modeled for us in the giving of himself on the cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that by faith in Jesus, we could be made one with the Father. In fact, Paul tells us that marriage is a picture of the oneness that Christ has with us to the Father. You see, oneness in marriage does not mean that your spouse will complete you. That's a self-serving perspective on marriage. Oneness in marriage means that you have surrendered yourself and, and you, you are now kind of committed to serve their needs as if they are your own, regardless of how your needs are being met. 
That is the essence of relational priority and relational unity in marriage. It's, it's those four words that would literally change the marriage landscape in our culture if we actually believed them and lived them out. And here's those four words. It's not about me. It's not about me. But we end up making marriage all about me because dating was all about me. <laughs> Which is why we gotta have a single focus in life. Cutter Calloway in his book, Breaking the Marriage Idol, I'll reference it many times in the series. It's available out at the Element Store. This book was revolutionary in um, kind of helping my thinking, shape my thinking on marriage for this series. He said this, in an ultimate sense, Marriage is about emptying ourselves entirely, both as individuals and as married couples, so the couple should empty themselves for others, so that the other might flourish, so that they might experience God's peace. Being one in marriage has nothing to do with chemistry and everything to do with commitment. So what commitments lead to oneness in marriage? Well, there's a relational priority that we have to have. There's a relational unity it's we, not me. It's, it's just, not just that two people come together, it's two people become one. Become one. That, that their good, it's, it's their good, not my good. Or to go one level deeper, their good is my good. Because we're one. We're one. The third commitment I think we need to have oneness in marriage is this. There's a relational intimacy in marriage. A relational intimacy. And someone's thinking, oh crap, here comes the sex talk. <laughs> and automatically in our over-sexualized culture, even in our over-sexualized Christianity and churches, we often equate intimacy with sex in marriage. But this might blow up someone's paradigm, sex is only a part of intimacy. It's an important part, but it's only a part. In fact, I wouldn't even say that sex is a part of our intimacy. I would say that sex is a natural byproduct of true intimacy in a healthy marriage. It's just the end result. And I think we see a picture of true and God-intended intimacy in verse 25 of our main scripture. It's the only verse we've not read yet. Uh, Genesis 2.24 said, For this reason a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two become one. And then verse 25 says this, so powerful. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Listen, that, that verse is deep. That is true intimacy. To bear oneself before the other, and there's no shame, no condemnation, meaning no immorality is happening in the nakedness. Again, this is not just sexual or even physical. In a marriage relationship, this is first spiritual, it's emotional, it's, it's mental. It means that I am not hiding anything from my spouse. It's bearing one's soul to the other. It's sharing all your struggles, 
all your doubts, all your hurts, all your hangups, all your fears, all your weaknesses, all of your desires, all of your disappointments, all your pain, all your past, all of your insecurities. It's being naked, fully exposed before the other, and yet there's no shame. Wow. Wow. The problem is, in relationships, we often start with sex as intimacy. When sex should actually be the end result of true intimacy in marriage. Now, make no mistake about it, in Genesis 2, when God said the two shall become one, there is a sexual connotation to what he's saying there, and I don't think I should get out the flip charts to explain how a husband and wife become one flesh, all right? I think we all got a picture of, of that, right? So I believe, barring a, a physical uh, disability and limitation that can keep someone from having sex or outside of both the husband and the wife mutually agreeing to abstain from sex for a season in order to seek God together in spiritual intimacy outside of a physical limitation or a spiritual choice by both partners, sexual intimacy should be a natural outpouring of the relational intimacy through oneness in marriage. It's the end result. Now, there, there might need to be some counseling to help someone overcome you know, some sexual limitations caused by pain or problems in the past. There might need to be some, some healing conversations that take place between couples. I, I get that, but sexual intimacy should be a natural outpouring of the relational intimacy a couple has in their oneness in marriage. We see this in Paul's teaching, God through Paul teaching us about marriage and singleness Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, meaning it's not just men who desire sex, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. That's relational unity, by the way. It's the giving of myself for the good of the other because we're now one. I don't, I don't own myself anymore. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time. Both of those are keywords. So you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. This doesn't get taught in church, by the way. I don't think I've ever taught on this. Like there is a place in healthy marriages to mutually choose to abstain from sex for a short time to seek God together. Why? Because we need spiritual intimacy as much as we need physical or sexual intimacy. But then he says this, afterward you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Those are some strong words pertaining to our sexuality in this intimate part of our of our marriage, that when we commit to a relational priority, when we commit to a relational unity, and when we commit to relational intimacy, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically, bearing ourselves before the other, the end result, I believe, will be a regular and consistent expression of our sexual intimacy one with the other. But don't sell this short, okay? Don't sell it short. Sex in marriage is so much more than just a physical release to experience pleasure. Yes, sex is pleasurable. God designed it that way. He's the one that thought of it. 
And yes, there are proven and scientific emotional and health benefits for married couples who have sex with one another being intimate. But while we have over-glorified sex to be just a physical act, I think in the church, we've also grossly under-glorified sex, specifically in the context of Christian marriage. And to end today, I wanna share with you, I believe, one of the most beautiful descriptions of sexual intimacy in marriage that I've ever seen before in my life. It elevates sexual intimacy to a place that I never even imagined, okay? This is from Lori Krieg. Lori, uh, she leads, she's director of a ministry called Whole In My Heart Ministries. She was here with us back in February in our Grace and Truth series. And in a recent podcast, she said this about sex in marriage. It's amazing. It's a little bit longer than normal, so kind of hang in here. Sex in marriage is a metaphor inside the metaphor itself. Marriage between a husband and wife is a metaphor of God's desire to be one with humanity. It points to the marriage between Christ and the church. The covenant of sex in marriage is modeling what Christ bodily did for us on the cross. Jesus saying, I am holistically giving and covenanting myself to you on the cross. So we say that through our sex. But we also say to our spouses through sex, this is how God wants to be one with you. He is the completer of you. He is the one who pursues you and desires you. We've overemphasized sex, but completely diminished it by not holding it up as this theological dance. That's beautiful, by the way. And that's what God desires for our marriages. He doesn't desire just sex. He desires intimacy. And that intimacy points us to the intimacy we actually desire, which is one with Christ. Our desire for marriage, our desire even to have sex, is all pointing us to the reality that none of that can actually fulfill. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can. He is the completer. He is the sustainer. He is the one that fulfills. I, I have no idea who needed to hear this message today. My heart was heavy to deliver it. Uh, unusually heavy. And I don't know why. I can honestly say that my wife and I, we are in the best season of marriage that we've ever, ever had in our life. Best ever. So I, I don't know what you should do with this. I do think there's some married couples in the room. You, you need to have some really, really serious conversations around relational priority, relational unity, relational intimacy. Uh, you need to have some conversations about sexual intimacy because I, I know there's some marriages in this room. You are struggling with oneness. You're struggling. Some of you are like, my marriage is great too. Maybe this is just a reminder for you then, just a confirmation to keep doing what you're doing. I don't know. I don't know what it is, uh, but I pray. I pray that, that the words of scripture and the words that God gave me um, 
benefit someone's life and relationships today. I do know this. Our desire for marriage points to our true desire for Christ. That Jesus did shed his blood on the cross for your sins. He did that so that you could be one with God forever. That by faith in Jesus, your sins can be forgiven, your heart made clean, your life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God will begin to fulfill you no matter your relationship status. So if you're here today and you're, you're that person, you've never put your faith in Christ, um, I want to talk to you about that. I'm not going to do a response here in the service. Just don't feel like I, I should today. Um, but if you want to talk to somebody about what it means to put your faith in Christ, um, find me in the lobby. Find a staff member, a volunteer. Uh, we'll be glad to talk with you about what it means to put your faith in the only person who can make you whole. There's not a human on the planet that will complete you. Jesus completes you. Amen? Father in heaven, I just thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the ability to, to deliver this word to just a, such a great group of people. Lord, they're my family. And Lord, these, these conversations are difficult. The next couple of weeks as we continue talking about marriage and then divorce, Lord, it's, they're important subjects, but they're, they're heavy, Lord. They're heavy. So would you just unify us together by your Holy Spirit? Lord, however you need to use these words to work on someone's heart, I pray that you do that. Lord, if there's, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, I pray they'd put your faith in you today that they would be the one lost sheep that was found. God, you are amazing. We love you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.